Lord, we're in this room coming around the warmth and the fire and the light. That's you. We're coming out of places that for some of us are very cold, for some of us are very dark, and we're coming to you. Just like we stand around a fire, that warmth drives out the other things. Lord, we're here to stand around your warmth, the warmth of your presence. So by the power of your Holy Spirit today, Lord, I pray that you would drive out the cold. You'd illumine the darkness. We need that more than we need anything else. We need that more than our hearing our favorite song or having things happen in a way that we want to have them happen. We just need you. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you please speak to us? We are listening, and now may the words of my mouth here in these next few minutes and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to remain standing with me. We're going to read the scriptures together. And we're wrapping up a series that we've been in called Questions About God. Let me give you a couple of just housekeeping things. Number one, if you're a mother, um, we're so glad you're here, or a lady who has invested in other people, we're just glad you're here. We've got a few things for you. Uh, There's a flower when you go out, and then out here, there's an iced coffee station. I saw some of the men eating your donuts. I will... I will castigate them later. And, um, and then there's a place up there where you can take a picture. Steve Rasmussen is a professional photographer, part of our congregation. We'll be taking pictures out there, and, and uh, we have all that for you because we would not be here without you. Can I get an amen for that? <laughs> so we appreciate you as, as our mothers. And I also know that this is a day that for many of you is a difficult day. I'm, I, on a day like this, I celebrate my wife and and, uh, but then I also grieve my mom, who's not here. And so I know for many of you, this is a day that is not necessarily happy, and we want you to know we acknowledge that. And, um, and there's a place for you here, too. Well, um, we're in this series, and, and um, next week we're starting a new series. I do this at the beginning of each new series, and if, you're, if you've been here for a little bit, you know, and, and you're probably dreading this moment, some of you, but some of you are excited. Uh, we're starting a series next week called Good Grief. It's not about Charlie Brown. Um, it's about how do you handle grief in a way that's good. When we suffer things, when we go through things, we don't always know what to do with the pain that we feel. And when we see someone else suffering, we don't always know what to say or how to help that person. And there are uh, many resources in the scriptures for dealing with grief in a good way. Uh, you'll, as we go through this series based on the Psalms, there are about a third of the Psalms or so are, are what are known as lament psalms, meaning they're songs of sorrow. And there's a lot of life that's not full of joy and happiness. And it's not going to be a depressing series as much as it's a helpful series. And so what I want you to do right now is take out your phone, sitting at home on the couch here in the room, and I want you to snap a picture of this screen. And I want you to say, hey, um, to three people this week sometime as you take this picture, hey, we're doing this series at my church, and it's about loss. Now, here's, here's why we're doing this. Uh, Over the course of COVID, we have suffered so many losses on so many levels, and we want to help you 
figure out how to deal with those things. And so if you say, I don't know what to say to somebody, just say, hey, my pastor's doing this series on helping you deal with loss, and I'd love for you to join me one of these Sundays. So take a picture, do that, challenge you to do that. Well, we're going to read the scriptures together. They'll be on the screen, Hebrews chapter 11. It's a famous passage for many people known as the Hall of Fame of Faith at certain points, and so I'll read it aloud. It'll be on the screen. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel, and here the writer is reaching back to all of these stories in the Bible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain, his brother, did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commanded as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much for standing out of reverence for God's word. You may be seated. Well, we're wrapping up this series, and we've been trying to answer questions that people have about God, people um, outside of faith who say, you know, I don't know how you can believe in a God, um, and have all these questions uh, that they have to wrestle through to get to a place where they might even consider faith, and then questions that many people, pastors like me, theologians, philosophers who are Christians, are trying to answer to explain why we do have faith. And so I want to talk to you today, um, just as we wrap up this series, we took a, a poll and you answered some questions out of kind of the six biggest questions that get asked today. Um, this was one of them was, uh, how do you believe in God? Just general belief in God. People wrestle with that, especially in uh, what I would call today an age of science. Now, I'm talking to two groups of people. Uh, number one, I'm talking to you if you're a person who does not believe. And uh, I want to give you five reasons to doubt your current system of belief. You, you're operating with a system of belief, whether you recognize it or not. I want to give you five reasons, I think, that are worthwhile for you to consider to doubt your current way of thinking about things. So I'm, I'm talking to you, and I hope at the end of that you say, okay, that I, can, I, I may not agree, but I can see how that makes sense. And then I also am talking to those of you who do already have faith. Uh, I want to give you a set of tools that can help you explain why you believe. Um, then the New Testament says that we're to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have in us. And so I want to give you these five things as a way for you to, uh, for you to have some uh, answers when people have questions for you. So if you want to take notes, I would encourage that. Well, I just, let me just jump, say this before we kind of jump into this. Um, number one, I, I, we've said this a couple times in the series, is I, I'm not going to be able today to absolutely, without any question, um, wash away all doubt and prove to you without question that God exists. I, I can't do that. Um, no one can do that. It would be a little bit like me trying to prove love. I, I can't prove it. I don't have something tangible to show you. All that we can say about love is that you can experience it and that you can demonstrate it, but you can't in the end prove it in the same way you can't necessarily prove the existence of God. But if you're on the other side, I would also say you can't disprove God. 
So you have to wrestle with both of those things. Now, before we jump into these five things, I just want to give you um, what are considered, and you're going to stay with me here, um, what are considered the kind of the classical arguments for the existence of God. I know you came on Mother's Day, and you're like, I'm going to hear a message about mothers, and instead you're going to hear philosophical arguments for the existence of God. Are you ready? Can you just buckle your seatbelt and touch your mom and say, I love you, while you're doing that right now, okay? Here they are. Here's, here's four things. I'm going to give you the $10 word. I'm going to explain it. And if you want to write this down, you can uh, certainly do that. And you can Google it later. Not now. Um, here's the first, the first kind of classic argument for the existence of God. And then I'm going to give you these, these five things you need to consider. Um, it's called the cosmological argument. Think about the cosmos. And this the argument goes like this. Well, okay, if you have something, if something began, then it had to be begun by a beginner. Someone had to start this. Where did it all begin? You can't just have something and it didn't have a first start or someone who started it. That's the kind of cosmological argument in a very thin nutshell. Or you could go with um, Anselm. He was a monk in the, about the year 1000 or so. And he came up with what he called the, the ontological argument. That's the $10 word. And um, here's, here's what it is. I'm going to give it to you and then you're just going to have to go, hmm, and think about it for a second. This is what he says. He says, if you could conceive of a being greater than any other being, then that being must exist or you wouldn't be able to conceive of that being. Why else would the thought be there? Give it to you again. If you can conceive of a being greater than any other being, that being must exist or you wouldn't be able to conceive of that being. Why else would the thought exist? That's the ontological argument, thin sliced. The third one is called the teleological, which is a Greek word that means the end or the what's the goal. And it's a simple way to think about that is the, the argument from design. Look at the world around us. Look at the, the order of the planets. Look at how the earth is tilted a certain degree, 23 and a half degrees. And, you know, a half a degree this way, we freeze. Half a degree this way, we burn up. It's the fine-tuning of the universe. You can plan the seasons and plant crops around the order orderedness of the of the of the universe and it just makes sense how, how do you explain how do you explain that but think about your eyeball for a second or think about your fingers and how you have dexterity think about the fact that you have consciousness no one can explain consciousness you can't find any scientist or philosopher who can say this is why we are conscious beings who have a sense emotional experience of the world uh, nobody can explain how do you explain that where does that come from unless there's some kind of designer behind all of that. Now, the argument against that is just based on statistics. You know, hey, listen, we've got a, a universe. It's got billions of uh, galaxies. It would make sense in billions of galaxies that you would end up with a universe just like ours with consciousness and order and all of those things. But here's, here's, my, here's my, my response back to that. That would be like saying that you could get on a ship a rocket ship, go to another planet, and you would get off that rocket ship in your spacesuit because you don't know what the... And you would go over and just sitting on a rock, just you don't know how it got there, but just sitting on a rock is an iPhone, perfectly functional, able to call back home, right? You'd kind of go, wow, that's... Am I mean, you, I love my iPhone, but you would, you would say, it's, it's about that kind of ludicrous to think that that's the response to it. So you've got to wrestle through that one. So that's the, the, the teleological argument. Or the moral one. We'll spend a little more time on it here a little bit later in the message. But that, that's, the, that's the reality that you and I have to live together in a way that benefits and blesses people. So how do we determine what's right or wrong? Who says what's good? Who says what's bad? 
And where does it come from? Now, in the current moment that we're in, what's kind of got the, the weight in our culture is the idea that everything is relative. In other words, uh, morality and good and right and wrong are socially constructed realities. Now, if that's it, that we just decided together that this is what's good for everybody and we just kind of all agreed on that, if that's it, then that gives me no ground from which to judge or assess if something is good or not. Stay with me here, okay? So you might say, stealing is wrong, but I don't agree with that. You know, well, I mean, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me. So how, if that's the basis of why we agree on what's right and what's wrong, then if I decide to steal your car, how can you judge me for that? I'm just being true to me. I mean, come on. And if that's how you see things, then I would encourage you to go into auto theft because it's lucrative. And when the officer pulls you over, roll down the window and say, officer, I'm just being true to myself. This is just who I am. I've just decided this. I'm a, I'm a thief. That's what I am. And, and I'm just living out my truth, so please stop judging me. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's the end game of that. So Christians, we say that morality comes from the character of God and, and revealed to us in Jesus. And so we do or don't do things or we, because they do or don't align with the character of God. So things like justice and dignity and mercy and truth for us all have concrete meaning. They mean something because they come from the character of God. Frederick Nietzsche is an atheist philosopher. He, he said this. He said, if nothing is true, then everything is permitted. He had, the, he had the guts to take that all the way to the end. And he said, if that's the case, then all that we're left with when we're trying to figure out what's right and wrong and who decides what we do and what we don't do is what he called the will to power. In other words, whoever has the most power makes the rules. Now, I, I, those are all four arguments for the existence of God. Very honestly, they're not ironclad. You could come up with holes in each of them. They make sense to me. They make sense to millions. And I'm not trying to tell you they are ironclad. I'm just trying to say they help to make sense of why you might choose to believe in God, like many of us do. Well, I want to be on that. I, I could go down that path, but I just want to give you five um, reasons believing in God makes your life better. And these are five needs that whether you are a person of faith or not, you have these needs. So I'm not imposing needs on you. I'm just telling you needs all of us are wrestling with. We're all trying to come up with answers to these needs. And if your life is going to matter, if your life is going to be satisfying, then you better have answers to these needs. So here, here are the five needs that you and I have. You and I need meaning. You and I need meaning. Turn to your neighbor and say, I, I, this, this is going to mean something to me. <laughs> this is going to mean something to me. The writer of Hebrews, he says uh, that by faith we understand. In other words, faith is a, a lens for understanding. Now, we've kind of divided meaning in our day into two kind of camps. There's one, the religious way of looking at things, and then there's the scientific way of looking at things. And so, on the one hand, you have some, some people of faith, some Christians who only look to religion, and they say, that's the only way we can get meaning. And if you think science is how you're going to give you meaning, then you're, you're ridiculous, or you're godless, or you're hopeless. And, and I just want to say to people in that camp who say science is, you need to just kind of exclude science, that you might not realize that modern science was begun by Christians. Uh, in fact, theology back several hundred years ago was referred to as the queen of sciences. What does the queen do? The queen creates heirs. So 
people looked at the world and they said, God gave us the world. God made us in his image, meaning we have the ability to create things and put things into the world. And we have the ability to know things and understand things and see the angles on things. So if that's the case, since we're made in God's image and we have the ability to create and we can know things, then let's examine the whole world and let's understand how God intricately put everything together. And that was the beginning of modern science. And so people on this side of the thing who say, you should just ignore science and they're all the godless, misunderstand science and neglect the glory of God's creation. And honestly, it's a very narrow-minded way of looking at things because you're failing to see both how we were created in God's image and how big God's world is. One of my favorite hymns growing up was, uh, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget. I don't know what ne'er means, never. Let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. In the rustling grass I hear him pass. And then there's this phrase. He speaks to me everywhere. Do you know that song? So if God speaks, to, is it, if this is my father's world, all of it, then what in the world are you afraid of? Nothing, I hope. But on the other side, there's, there's another way of trying to get meaning, and that's saying that the only way to get meaning and know what's true and what's accurate is through science, and so you have to measure something, and only if it's objective and you can measure it and know it does it mean anything. And, and there, that while I appreciate that, because anytime I take headache medication, I'm so grateful for science. Whenever I get on a plane and I safely make it to my destination and then get on the return flight and safely make it back, guess what? I am incredibly grateful for science. But the problem, if that's just the way that you go about things, is so much that's important cannot be measured. Love, joy, peace, relationships, morality, dignity, justice. You can't weigh those things, incredibly important parts of life. You can't weigh those things on a scale and determine their mass. And if that's the only way you go about finding meaning in life is what you can measure objectively, well, that's also very narrow-minded. It's also one very small way of looking at things. So if you're, on the, if you're on the bus of, okay, well, it's just religion, you understand what you're doing is you're taking meaning from people who see another side and say, I need to understand. And you're making them think that there's a false choice, that they have to either choose faith or truth. So stop. This is my father's world and stop limiting it, limiting it to what you know of it. You serve a big God so you have no reason for being so little in your thinking. And on the other hand, if you say it's just you know, what I can objectively understand, well then you, what you're doing is you're removing most of the things in life that make life meaningful and, and, and you'll know how things work, but you won't be able to fill the hole in your soul. And what I want to say to you is that faith in God is the doorway to meaning of all kinds. If you read Hebrews 11, chapter 3, so what is seen was made, not made out of what was visible. There's a lot of latitude there. Can you see an atom? Can you see a quark? You can't see any of those things. And consider the wisdom here of the latitude that's in that statement. So you and I, you and I need meaning. You and I need a path. This is my question to you. It's just a pastoral question. Um, and, and it's this, where, where are you headed? When I was a youth pastor and I worked with students, um, I would ask this question kind of regularly. I would say, listen, if you stay on the path that you are currently on for the next five years, where will it take you? Don't make any changes. Stay on that path. 
Where is it going to take you? What kind of person will you be? What quality of relationships will you have? What will you have accomplished? What will you have contributed to the world? I mean, where is that path taking you? You and I need a path. Where is your path going to take you in five years? I remember vividly, I was uh, um, in seminary, and um, we didn't have kids yet, Andrea and I, and uh, I was working up, just, for a, just for a little bit, I worked at a corporate job, and um, I, I had plenty, you know, dressed like you do when you work in corporate America back in the 90s, and um, so I'm, I'm, I'm shopping for a shirt, and um, I already had a closet full of shirts, and I remember so vividly, I'm standing there, and I'm looking at all these shirts, and I'm thinking, do I really need another one of these shirts? Is that, is that really what I need? And, and it struck me. I can still remember what I was thinking and feeling. It struck me that my life was basically about me, and that if I continued going down this path, my life would just be more and more about me, and it would never be anything greater than me. Now, I'm not saying that's the path that you're on, but I'm, I'm saying it's worth asking the question, what kind of path are you on? Do you have a path to a better you? What is the path? That's why I followed Jesus, because Jesus' basic invitation to all human beings, you and I, is come follow me. It's a transformative path. It's, it changes you. If you know some of the stories in the New Testament, you might know the story of Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote much of what we have as the New Testament, letters he traveled and planted churches and started churches. If you know his life from those letters, you, you might know also his life before. His name was, was Saul, and Saul, out of his religious zeal, was going and actually persecuting and killing Christians. And he had this transformative encounter with Jesus in his life went from going this direction to his life going this direction. Because anytime you follow Jesus, you are put on a path to a better you. So my question for you again is, do you have a path? Who is guiding you on that path? And here's a way to think about that differently. If everyone followed your path, what kind of world would we have? You need a path. Now, the message of Christianity is actually very pessimistic about your ability and my ability to carve out that path. Because what the Bible says is that you and I are sinners. That's just a word that it actually is taken from archery that refers to a, 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 an archer trying to hit a target. And so what, the, what that implies is two things. One, you could choose an entirely different target. Like this is the target you're supposed to hit, but you aim over here. Or it just refers to the fact that you and I might be trying to hit the target, but we always seem to miss. We're always a little bit wide of the mark. So the Bible's very pessimistic about you and I being able to figure that path out. But at the same time, it's very hopeful about what you can become when your life is in God's hands. And so the message of Jesus is a path to a better you and a better world. You need a path. Well, you also, you need hope. Um, hope is, I, I would call it, psychological fuel. If you don't have hope, you die. Viktor Frankl lived in uh, Nazi Germany. He was Jewish. He was a psychologist, and he was uh, sent to concentration camps. He actually spent time in four different concentration camps and almost died. But he, he wrote uh, several things about it after the fact. He lived and, and was kind of prolific in, in writing things about it. 
And he, he made some observations about what happened in those concentration camps. And he said that the only people who actually survived were the people who decided to cultivate hope. Let me, let me tell you what he says. We've got it on the screen for you here. He says, we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man. But one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. You, you have to have hope. You cannot survive without hope. So where in the world are you getting your hope from? Now, the writer to Hebrews talks about hope and ties hope to faith and says that hope has two kinds of dimensions in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. So it's, it's the idea that there's something better coming. And then at the same time, it's assurance about what we don't see. It's a realization that there's more to the story than we currently see. There's more to the story than cancer. There's more to the story than addiction. There's more to the story than bitterness. There's more. There's more going on. It's not just that. It's not just the thing that you see. And hope is what allows you to keep going. That's exactly what the writer to Hebrews is saying. You and I need hope. Fourth thing is that you and I need a compass. Now, um, I don't know if you've used a compass before. I've uh, done a lot of hiking and I've used the compass, and I don't know if you understand how a compass works, but um, a compass works not because you're holding the instrument in your hand, though you, you have to have the instrument. It works because there's something outside of it that it aligns itself to. So the magnetism of the Earth's core points that needle north, so you can always know what north is. And, and the compass works because it's responding to something outside of itself. And so if I'm going to find my way, it won't be because of the compass, but because the compass is responding to what's outside of it that's actually there. Let me, let me see if I can bring this down. So let's think about that moral argument for a second for the existence of God. Morality is trying to answer the question, so what's good? And what's the standard that we measure against? When I was in high school, I uh, was a sophomore. We moved my sophomore year to Louisville, Texas, and I was, uh, I, I was right in the middle of the year, and I'd played basketball my freshman year. And I'm, I mean, I'm okay. I'm not great. I don't, I don't, I don't have a lot of game, but I got some. And, um, and so I, I wanted to be on the team, and so this was a much larger high school. And if you know the Dallas-Fort Worth area, it's referred to as the Metroplex. And so we had on the team that year, my sophomore year in high school, the leading scorer in the Metroplex and me. <laughs> and, and so uh, I would be the guy in practice. They would never put me in the game because I wasn't that great. Um, but I would be the guy in practice that he would just take and mop the floor with, right? It'd be me. And so the standard that everybody was looking to for a great player was not me. The standard was this guy who was the leading scorer in the Metroplex. That's what Morality's trying to say. Which standard do we hold ourselves to? Which, which one's the compass? Which one should we point ourselves to? And here's, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm trying to suggest to you is that we've maybe never been more concerned about standards and morality and at the same time, less untethered to reality. So think about, 
think about, think about dignity. Let me use that as an example for a second. Um, here's what we've done. We've decided that you and I, we've decided we're the standard. So something is true because I believe it. I don't believe it because it's true. Do you see the difference? Today we've decided, well, it only becomes true when I believe it, and then it's only true for me. It might not be true for you, but it's definitely true for me. And so uh, it's true because I believe it. But let's think about human dignity for a second. If that's how it works, then how do you know that human beings have dignity? Because we've maybe never been more tuned in as a world culture to the fact that dignity and human rights matter. We've maybe never been as dialed in as we are right now. How do you know that humans have dignity? Where do you get that idea from? If it's just your opinion versus my opinion, then you have no grounds to argue. Is it, wh whose opinion matters? Who's to say that your opinion about human dignity is right? Who's to say that mine is? And so we're untethered. We, we, we know, yeah, human dignity matters, but we don't have any reason why. And so we're completely untethered. And let me give you a, let me give you a, a, a very current example of what that creates when we're as untethered as we are. We're, we're living in um, what everyone is calling cancel culture, and I hope if you're paying attention that you see that all sides are doing it. Like, it's, it's existing on, on all sides. Um, everybody's canceling everybody else, and don't, don't buy into that it's just that other group that you don't agree with, that, and so you ought to cancel them. Don't, don't buy into that. It's, we're, we're in this never-ending game of paybacks, and, and do you know what's behind it? It's this idea that, you know, I decide what's true and you decide what's true. Because if that's it, if that's the whole reason that you and I will agree to something being moral or good or a compass that we can orient ourselves around, and there's no God, then, then I have to right now, whenever I am offended, I have to get vengeance for being offended because no one is going to in the future, so I better take care, core of, it, uh, care of it right now. And so I've got no other recourse. And so I must punish you. And so here's what cancel culture is. Cancel, is we, we cancel culture is we sentence that person forever to the hell of being outside the human family as we define it. And so there's no peace. And there is nothing but misery. Now, again, this idea of morality is one of the classic arguments for the existence of God. And what we say is that the source of morality and good is outside of me and it's outside of you. And so it comes from the character and the nature of God. The reason that people have dignity, the reason everyone you know matters, the reason that Bill Gates is not more important than the lowest caste person in India, the reason your boss is not more important than you, the reason you are not more important than your kids, the reason that we have equality and dignity is because we are made in the image of God. Every single person that you know. There's no one that you know that does not have dignity. If you think you're up here because you have a certain job and someone else is down here, you don't understand the character of God and the person who cleans, who cleans your toilets if they work for you. They have as much dignity as you do. See, that's, that, that's where we get that idea. That you have dignity. And so things like stealing then, we don't steal not because it's bad. We steal because it violates that person's dignity because that, and that comes from the character and the nature, nature of God. Guess what that then does? That releases me, if there's a God, that releases me from vengeance and makes it possible for me to forgive. 
The way out of cancel culture is not labeling them and writing them off and putting them on the dustbin of history. The way out of cancel culture for Christians is to forgive. That's how it works. So here's what the writer to Hebrews says. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What's the reward? Peace and reconciliation. (laughs) First in you and then in other people. You and I need a compass. And then last one, you and I need a family. You and I need a family. I would, um, I would argue that the prevailing spirit of our day is what I would call an orphan spirit. And an orphan is a, a, a person, you, you know, right? It's, they've lost their parents. But I want you to think about it in terms of you had parents and it was all going fine and you were aware that you had parents and then all of a sudden they're lost in a tragic accident and you are utterly and completely alone. That's, that's an orphan. It's just the sudden realization that I am alone in the world and that it's all up to me. I have to foot my own bill. Um, I have to protect myself because I don't know what people will do to me. I am misunderstood. We, we are living in an age of an orphan spirit. That's what people are carrying around with them, the sense that I don't belong to anybody, and, and the only people I do belong to are people who see it the way I do. And so we're carrying around this protective bubble that we feel like we're all alone. It's an orphan spirit. But you and I need a family. I get that the word family for many of you uh, has not always been something positive. There's been pain associated with that word. And so you might, you might hear that word and go, well, yeah, but you didn't know my parents. You didn't know my mom. You didn't know my dad. Okay. I'd... Could you think about the family that you've always seen and you've wanted and you thought, if I could have a family, it'd be like that. I'm talking about that. One of the words that gets used in the New Testament for the way we are brought into a relationship with God is the word adoption. When Andrew and I had our three kids, I still vividly remember we both kind of had this sense. We saw our kids for the first time and we, we loved them. But there was a sense in which we said, okay, well, I guess we're stuck with that one. You didn't pick, right? Adoption is, the, it's kind of the opposite, because you pick. You, you, you. I pick you, I pick you. Adoption means you're wanted. Adoption means someone is covering your expenses. Adoption means you have a place. Adoption means that you belong. That you are now in the family Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 1. He's talking about Jesus. For Jesus chose us in him before the creation of the world. Before this began, predecided to pick you. To be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption 
to sonship. Paul's using a very specific word there that everybody in his day would have understood. The rights of becoming a Roman citizen by adoption and all the privileges that go along with it. He's using a specific term that everybody would have understood. But he uses that word predestined. Now listen, if you've been around, you know that's a theological football. I'm not trying to make it a theological football. I'm simply saying, think about it from the fact that it's a word that means that you were wanted. That God predecided to pick you. That when you went out onto the playground at, uh, at recess in elementary school and everybody lined up to pick the teams, and you stood there as a little kid like I did, and you're like, oh, please don't pick me last, please don't pick me last, please don't pick me last. God picked you first. He's the captain, and he went, I'll take you. I'll pick you. I want you. You're mine. You're the one that I picked in advance through Christ Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. He wanted, there was no arm twisting. No one was twisting God's arm behind his back. I pick him. I know he's, I know he's not worth much, but pick him. Come on. No, no. He wanted to. We're going to receive the elements of communion and hopefully when you came in you re- if you're here in the room with us you received these uh, elements and and I do promise that sometime soon we're not going to have to use these little cups but we've been doing this for covid and I would invite you to take these elements this is what's known as the lord's supper we remember what Jesus did for us and we model it after the meal that Jesus received with his disciples on Thursday night before he went to the cross on Friday. He was with his disciples in a room for the Jewish Passover meal. And Jesus uh, celebrated this meal with his disciples. And there were a couple elements in that meal. There was bread that Jesus said symbolized his body that would be broken the next day for you. And then there was a cup that Jesus said symbolized his blood that would be shed the next day for you. Now, if you you know about this, if you know Jesus already, um, the Apostle Paul says that when we come to this meal, we're to examine ourselves. That this is an opportunity to remember the Lord's death until he comes, to remember what Jesus has done for you. Again, to bring it to mind, to let it be fresh again, to make it meaningful again about what Jesus did for you. And so in just a second, I'm going to invite you to take those elements, if that's you, to to pause right now. But there's some of you that, um, you know, this is not a a thing that you take, or maybe you haven't taken communion in a long time, because you, in your words, you would say, you know, I'm not a person of faith anymore. I used to be, or I've never been a person of faith. And I want you to see this a little bit differently, because Jesus was sharing a meal with his disciples around the table. And I want you to take these elements today and recognize that they're an invitation to sit at the table as part of the family. That you can be adopted at any moment. <laughs> the writers of the Gospels and the writers of the New Testament, that God's just as close. He's near to every one of you. And the, the image is right here. If you would just look right here, right here, here. And today you might take these elements as a way of saying, man, I want to be at the table. Because you're, you're coming up with an answer to the question, you know, what, what, what's the meaning and purpose of life? 
you're coming up with an answer to the question of how do I have hope? You're coming up with a, an answer to the question, what's, what's my compass? Where am I pointed? You're coming up with an answer to the path that you're taking in life. You're, you're coming up with an answer to who do I belong to? I just want to tell you that the, the good news of Jesus is there's an answer for all of those things. And so I would invite you right now to take this bread and break it and remember that Christ's body was broken for you. Take it, eat it, and be thankful. And when Jesus was with his disciples on that meal the Thursday before he was crucified, he took the cup that was there, a symbolic cup, lifted it up, and he said, this represents my blood that was shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. It's a new covenant that I make with you. Take, drink this, be thankful that Christ died for you. If you're in the room, I'd invite you to stand to pray for you as we go. Uh, Lord, thank you Thank you that this is your world. Thank you for people who have given themselves to understanding how it works. Thank you that we have medicine and we have cars and we have technology because people have given themselves to the pursuit of knowledge because they're made in your image. So we take that as a gift that you've given to us, the creative potential you've put into us because we're made in your image. We receive that as a gift that you give through people. Thank you that uh, you didn't leave us with an idea, God. You didn't leave us with a philosophy. You came as a person. The truth is you, not a set of ideas. You who died on a cross for us, you who rose again for us, and so, again today, we put our trust and our confidence in you, Jesus, the risen Jesus. We put our trust in you today. And for my friend who wants a seat at the table, help them to understand today is just as simple as saying, God, I want to be in. Forgive me for the past. I want to take my seat at the table. And so, God, thank you that we can bring our questions to you and that you understand, and that's okay. Thank you that you yourself are the answer. So we receive you today. We pray this in your name and all of God's people said.